Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Well, good morning. My name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm pastor here at Covenant Church, and we are continuing on in our sermon series called Smaller, Slower, Lesser, Lower. This week, we are attacking lesser. So if you're just joining us, this is your first, second week, you go, I feel like I'm getting into the middle of something. You are. Um, You'll catch right up today. If you want to go back, you can always go back. We have a podcast everywhere that you get podcasts. You can listen to the things that way. You can go to our website, watch videos. However you want to do it, um, it's there for you. And we're going to continue by kind of taking a nuanced look at what we talked about a couple weeks ago with, with smaller, because lesser and smaller feel kind of like those might be similar ideas. The way we're going to get to lesser being nuanced and different is to recognize that the world we live in, uh, people are driven towards more, and this is about less. More, 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 more. More money, more power, more status, and, and I think mostly more recognition is what we're all after. And these are all various forms of currency, their levels of, of uh, consumerism that we're able to leverage then, because if I have more money or power or status or recognition, I can, I can turn that into something. I can get something out of that. So no matter what we want out of life, we can leverage more to get more of what we really want. And so like a couple of weeks ago, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest when we were talking about smaller, and they said, who's the greatest? They were talking about status. And the status that comes with it. And so what Jesus says, undercut that, and he, he offered them a heart of humility. And today, we're going to see a different episode where Jesus' cousin pushes towards lesser. And I think this is less about status and more about recognition. I was uh, trying to think of a way to illustrate this, and I was going through all the movies that, you know, you kind of go, what, where have I seen this before? And who remembers uh, Toy Story 2 when they, uh, with Jesse's Roundup Gang, and there's a whole thing, Toy Story 2. If you don't remember it, basically Woody um, gets found, he somehow ends up in a garage sale, gets found by a toy collector who recognizes Woody, recognizes him as um, like a famous star of a 50s era television show. And so makes a deal with a Japanese toy museum to show Woody off. And Woody, Woody will stop being a toy and will start being a collectible thing for people to admire. And what Woody is after, after years of anonymity being in Andy's room, he's after his little slice of fame. He's after recognition. And, and it takes Buzz Lightyear coming in, and Buzz Lightyear has to say, no, no, no you were a, you're not a star. You're a toy. You were, you were created for a child to play with, not to be put behind glass. And I thought that was so interesting, thinking back through that scene, because even more now than when that movie was made, that's so true, is we are a generation of people, especially with technology offering it, that is tempted to become stars behind glass, that if we can perform just right and put the right things out for people to see, that on the other end of their glass rectangle, they get to see us as something of a star in their world. And so we've been taught by our culture, we've been taught to leverage life for more. Build your brand. Become a self-promoter. Show the world what you have to offer. Create content and then sell it. Grow your following and repeat. And it's easy just to talk about yourself and build yourself up. It's just easy now. We have so many channels to to make much of ourselves. And so we've become a society of shameless self-promoters. 
And most of us, when you hear that, and when I hear that, I go, well, they've become, a, they're self-promoters. I don't do that. They do that. We all do that. This is what technology affords us. It allows all of us channels to become shameless self-promoters. Moms and dads and accountants and athletes and plumbers and pastors all the same. We all have a chance to make much of ourselves. And the temptation for each of us is to spend our day building the kingdom of self. And it's not what you were called to. In my house, we have a familiar phrase. My children will know this. Every human being's favorite topic of conversation is themselves. Every human being's favorite topic of conversation is themselves. This is why I'm going to put a slide up for you. 60% of all of your conversation is about self, and 80% of all social media conversation is about self. So people have analyzed the data. This is what happens. 60% of the words that come out of your mouth are about you. 80% of the things that you type into social media are about you. We have a picture of a brain. Why? Self-disclosure is what we'll call this. Self-disclosure activates your prefrontal cortex, which is that purple part in the front. And you see a little line going to a tiny little bean right in the middle. That's your ventral tegmental area. This is the area of your brain that is responsible for behavior and pleasure. and It's the reward center of your brain. And so what happens is when you practice self-disclosure, your brain kicks in. Self-disclosure brings on pleasurable feelings, motivational states, and chemical rewards associated with stimulus like cocaine and sex and good food. Talking about yourself brings about similar reward mechanisms in your brain as hard drugs, great meals, and sex. No wonder it feels so good to talk about ourselves. You get a little chemical gift every time you talk about yourself. You get a little chemical gift. Doesn't that feel good? To which I kind of thought, I had to think through this for a minute. I said, why would God create us in such a way that we're like, are we wired to be self-focused? And I thought, no, 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 the, the beauty of this is confession should feel good. Like maybe confession feels good when you confess something to somebody, when you unburden yourself and you're accountable to somebody, that should feel really good. And there's a reason it does. God's wired you to get a little chemical kiss every time you're able to confess something to someone else. The challenge is we take many good things and we make them um, God things. We make them bigger than good things, and that's where addiction comes in. Every addiction is a good thing taken to a bad place. It's the overconsumption of a good thing. Becoming addicted to a good thing like yourself is kind of where we sit today. We spend our lives seeking more recognition, more light to shine on myself. We are all souls searching for spotlights. In our normal, everyday default position, we are souls searching for a spotlight. Consider, uh, consider a dinner table. Whether you're a family and you gather around a dinner table with children or, or you go out to eat with friends or you remember your childhood, when we gather around the dinner table, that is a self-disclosure fiesta. Because what do we do? How was your day today? Oh, well, let me tell you about my day today. Now your turn. How was your day today? Well, let me tell you about my day today. What was the best part of your day today? More about me? Okay, for sure. And we end up talking. Everybody just talks about themselves. And we kind of ping pong back and forth, and everybody talks about themselves, and everybody gets their little chemical gift, and we all feel good about it. And we're like, man, it feels good to talk about other things, mainly myself, but other things. <laughs> And everybody else, you know, while we're on the subject of, of talking and how this works, everybody knows that vague feeling that the person you're talking to isn't listening to you but thinking about what they want to say. <laughs> everybody knows that feeling. Their eyes glaze over just a little bit. They stop making eye contact. And you know they're forming their next self-disclosure moment 
They're like, this is cool, but not all that rewarding. Why don't I talk about myself more? While you're talking, I'll take the time and just, ooh, that's a good one. I'll tell them that. Uh-huh, what? Yes. No, totally, I agree. That reminds me of this time that I, and everybody knows that. <sighs> Listening is exhausting work. This is why we have utmost respect for uh, clinical counselors and therapists in the room, the people who sit and listen to people for a living. It's amazing. It is exhausting. And all day is poured into listening to someone else. You know the rewards that are sitting on the table where we could just turn the conversation to ourselves. That reminds me of a time in my life. Let me help you. Oh, it's hard to listen because the reward of self-talk is always around the corner. My kids, I said they know this idea that every, every human's favorite topic is themselves. I'm trying to train them to be curious about others, to listen well. It's, it's the thing we talk about. I don't, it's not real structured. I just go, listen, you got you to focus on others. You got to do this. The other day, uh, the way our dinner works at my house is uh, usually I'm the cook, and so usually I will have dinner ready, and then as plates start going out to the dinner table, um, I come in last, and they'll be waiting, and so then we have this argument, and I'm like, start eating, and then they'll be in the other room, they'll be like, we're waiting for you, and I'm like, but it's getting cold, and we, you know, we go back and forth, and they finally start eating. So usually by the time I sit down, everybody is several bites in. My 12-year-old is usually done. She's just like, and I'm out. <sighs> How was your date? Oh, see you later. Um, and so we do the normal dinner table thing. We ask about their days, and we self-disclose, and everybody feels good. But they know this. Everybody just wants to talk about themselves, and it's important to ask about others. And so as usually happens, eventually everybody finishes eating before I do, and I say, you guys can go. You don't have to wait on me. And I sit at the table by myself, which is actually this little sweet moment of solitude right before I get up. And I'm eating by myself, I'm finishing my dinner, and my 12-year-old walks back in the room. It, you could see that this is like effort. She is working hard. And she goes, Dad, how was your day today? And I said, Bella, you don't care. I won't bore you, but I'm so glad you asked. You can go. And she goes, Whew, okay, thanks. And she, left. <laughs> she didn't want to know. But it was progress because she, it's in her brain somewhere to go, wait, 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 wait. Life's not about me. I need to ask about his day. And she didn't care. She was off doing other things. She has homework. She has a busy life. Go, 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 go. But exactly right. We're making progress. We're becoming listeners. So consider your own life and your own conversations. Consider your own days. What? is your life about? I mean, it's yours. This, this is pretty easy and rational. This actually isn't wrong. Your days are about you, and mine are about me. Your conversations, 60% or more, are about you. Mine are about me. The challenge is this is usually a veiled grasp for meaning. When, we, when I say my days are about me, they need to be about me serving others. When they're about me serving me, that becomes the problem. And we're grasping for meaning in the form of money or adventure or causes or gratification, or simple recognition. We want to be seen. More of me, more for me, is how we live, which is why today we tackle lesser. As we get into the scripture in John chapter 3, I want to hold up this. If you are in this room and you don't have a Bible, or you'd like a new Bible, or you have a friend who you'd like to give a Bible to, we have a uh, shelf out there in the bookcase that has all these blue Bibles in it, and they are free, and they are for you. So if you take one or a hundred, we have a whole other box to put up there. So those are always there for you, so just remember that. Those are there if you ever need one. John 3, verse 22. 
After this conversation, Jesus went on with his disciples into the Judean countryside and relaxed with them there. He was also baptizing. At the same time, John was baptizing over at Anon near Salim, where water was abundant. This was before John was thrown into jail. And John's disciples got into an argument with the establishment Jews over the nature of baptism. And then they came to John and they said, Rabbi, you know the one who was with you on the other side of the Jordan? They're talking about Jesus. The one you authorized with your witness? Well, he's now competing with us. He's baptizing too when everyone is going to him instead of us. And John answered, it's not possible for a person to succeed. I'm talking about eternal success without heaven's help. You yourselves were there when I made it public that I was not the Messiah, but simply the one sent ahead of him to get things ready. The one who gets the bride is, by definition, the bridegroom, and the bridegroom's friend, his best man, that's me, in place at his side where he can hear every word, is genuinely happy. How could he be jealous when he knows that the wedding is finished and the marriage is off to a good start? And John says this, that's why my cup is running over, it's overflowing. This is the assigned moment for him, Jesus, to move into the center while I slip off to the sidelines. For context, this is John chapter 3, which is home of the most famous verse in the Bible that you see in the end zone of a football game when the field goal goes up. It's John 3.16, when Jesus tells Nicodemus that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him shall never perish. On the heels of this intense conversation and this deep truth that he gives to Nicodemus, it says Jesus pulls back, goes off to the countryside. He's relaxing, baptizing people as they come. And there we find John, not too far away, with his followers. Jesus is a rabbi. John is a rabbi. They're, they're, they're both teachers. And John's students notice that Jesus is kind of getting popular. John's students act like Jesus opened a Starbucks across from their indie coffee shop. Like, well, he's giving away frappuccino. It's just like it's a whole problem that he's taking all of their business. And how are they going to grow their business? How are they going to grow their fame? How will they be important members of the Jewish society if Jesus is taking all of the customers? As a side note, you didn't ask, but you're going to know this. There is research done that a Starbucks opening with a mile, within a mile of a, a local coffee shop improves the business of the local coffee shop, which doesn't have a ton to do, maybe it does, that when, when Jesus opens up shop, everyone flourishes, but when a Starbucks opens near a local coffee shop, all it does is increase the number of people that decide they like coffee. And like we talked about a couple weeks ago with the more, better, different trap, oh, I like coffee, oh, I want better coffee, so I go to the indie shop, and then I want different coffee, so I have to go to the weird indie shop in the next city over. And, and so it's a whole thing. So when Starbucks moves in, it's actually good. And the same thing is happening here for John's disciples, is they're going, wait a minute, Jesus has moved into the neighborhood and they're taking all of our customers. What about our glory? What about our profits? What about our brand, John? And John basically says, you're jealous? And you're inviting me to be jealous? This is a reason for joy, not jealousy. In fact, I'm overjoyed. John says, I'm overflowing. Because lesser is the journey from thirsty to satisfied. John's disciples are thirsty, as the kids say. If you don't know what that means, stay right there. John's disciples are thirsty. They would like some love and some attention. They would like some recognition. And John is incensed by this, by his followers. John says, how are you thirsty when we have access to the overflowing goodness of God's kingdom coming? 
So he says, my cup is running over. This is important because he's speaking not about the thing that's happening in the moment. He's speaking about the source of his satisfaction. The source of his satisfaction is not in how many customers he can get into the baptistry. The source of his satisfaction is, is the kingdom coming and is the king here? His students are after their own glory and their own shine. They're chasing that little tingling feeling in their prefrontal cortex. They're chasing that little chemical reward that comes with getting a little bit more famous, which is natural. But it's a chase that can't ever satisfy because they are broken cisterns. Cisterns in the, in the Israeli world, in the old Jewish world, they were really like holes dug in the ground that were uh, lined and, and fortified with or a stone or or some sort of stucco, and it was basically an underground water tank, which is a great thing when you're in the desert and you need a drink. When your animals need a drink, you can go get fresh water from underground. It's cool. It's there. It doesn't get evaporated because it's underground. It's, they built cisterns. The problem is when a cistern leaks, it goes quick because then the water just flushes out into the desert, and you have a broken cistern. It can't hold water. And John is looking at his disciples and saying, I'm satisfied and overflowing. You guys are broken cisterns. You guys are leaking out everywhere because your source of satisfaction is different. John knows a better way. John would say it this way. Maybe it's not the soul's search for the spotlight that's wrong. It's the aim of the light. So we said every soul is a soul searching for a spotlight. John is sort of saying it's not that the aim for the spotlight is wrong. It's not that searching for the spotlight is wrong. It's the place we want to aim it. So John's life is about pointing the spotlight at Jesus, and his followers' life is about grabbing the spotlight for self. And the thing about Jesus is when we make much of Jesus and we put our hope and our, our trust in Jesus, Jesus is the cistern that doesn't leak. He's a well that never runs dry. He's living water. It never runs dry. So for John to see Jesus active in the kingdom arriving, John's heart is full and his satisfaction is deep because the well he's drawing from is the well of Christ. Imagine you are parched. I don't know, you just ran 15 miles. You're not used to running 15 miles. You just mowed the, the yard on the hottest day of the summer and you've had nothing to drink all day and you come in and your mouth is dry. You're thinking about it right now and your mouth is getting a little dry. It's kind of uncomfortable. And imagine you're offered a well, an endless well overflowing from the sides and you are parched and you take a handful and you start drinking. And it's hard to drink out of your hand and so it's running down your chin and you're, you're just, but you're, and it never ends. And eventually you drink so much that you're, remember that feeling as a kid when you drink out of the hose and your belly would get, you know, like this big? You just drank too much. You're, you're overflow. You can't even have any more. And it's running down your chin and your belly is full and the water's still coming out. And you go, wow, I don't even remember what thirsty was. This is great. That's what John is describing as satisfaction, is, is he's drinking from a well that never runs out, and, and eventually he learns to be content and satisfied in wherever he is because he knows that there's always, there's always more Jesus. He's overflowing. His satisfaction is in God's design and his plan. He's actually redefined success. He's content in being a child of God, doing the will of God. Nothing more, nothing less. John is content being a child of God, doing the will of God. He's not after his personal brand. He's after being a child of God, doing the will of God. And he spent his whole life paving the way for Jesus. He spends every moment of his life paving the way for Jesus. He's doing cultivation work, isn't he? He's cultivating the ground and preparing it for Jesus to come so that great things might grow. He has his hands in the soil of life, and he's turning the ground and waiting for Jesus to come and make something beautiful. 
He's been working the field of self too. He's been weeding every thorn and every weed. He's been pulling that out and getting rid of that so that he might be soil that Jesus might use. Weeding out pride and envy and all the different things, the self-glory that we want. He's getting rid of those things so that Jesus might be made much of. And this is not easy, but the yield of that life is great. John has cultivated a heart that is in perfect alignment with God's kingdom and his plan. And the result is that he has beautiful, overflowing joy and satisfaction as people pass him by to go and seek Jesus. Isn't that envy? It's joy. You and I drink from the wells of modern consumption. We take in more content than any people in the history of the world more news and entertainment, more food, drink, sex, all the things, we get more of it than anyone else ever. We are unfathomably rich in content. And we are hopelessly poor in contentment. Look around. Think of the people you know and the people you love. Think of your friends. Think of the state of the world around you. We are so rich in content. And how has that treated us? Where has that taken us? We are hopelessly poor in contentment. So what do we do? Simple solution. Spend less time consuming content. And like John, spend more time cultivating contentment. It's a little switch. It's a little play on words, but we spend, any time we spend consuming content, just consuming. There's good content. There's good things out. There's good things to read. There's a documentary. You read the book. You did, you, in the Bible. It's, content's not all bad. But nine times out of ten in our modern world when we're consuming content, it is not leading towards contentment. Because every moment of every day, you are either cultivating or consuming. You are building your appetite as a consumer or you are growing in contentment with the king. It's sort of an either or. You're doing one or the other. And what we know is the well of self is shallow and the well of the world is polluted and neither satisfied. They're both leaking, broken cisterns. And so if we have redefined success as being a child of God, doing the will of God, then we can find John's joy. If we just redefine success as that, as opposed to what the world says it is, it's being a child of God, doing the will of God. Then we have something greater to find. We can listen to John again, and he says, not only is it my joy to see Jesus coming in, there's more. What we read is he needs to take center stage in the message version. It says he needs to take center stage. While I slip off to the, spot, to the sidelines. Give Jesus the spotlight. Put him there. In the NIV, it simply says, he must become greater, I must become less. That is one of the most profound verses of Scripture you will find. He must become greater, I must become less. It's not just a nice sentiment, it is a radical concept. Everything in your culture, everything in our culture says, and maybe everything from their culture based on John's students' reactions. Everything in our culture says, you're the star. There should be more of you, bigger, better you, richer you. And John is saying, Jesus cannot be in the starring role if I spend my life demanding the spotlight. So John says he needs to slip off to the sidelines. Slip off to the sidelines. Not make it a big deal of it. I would probably make a big deal of it. Look at how much room I'm making for Jesus, guys. That's Jesus. I made room for him. I'm with him. Self, you know. John says, slip off to the sidelines. 
That's the picture of the stagehand in all black that doesn't want to be seen, that just wants the spotlight to be on the main character. Not look how great I am for giving Jesus the spotlight. Not tell your friends about me and what I've done for Jesus. Quietly, humbly ceding attention to the Savior. Jesus must become greater. John must become less. Let's do a little exercise. Let's insert your name. Jesus must become greater, must become less. Let's do it together. Let's read it together. And where it says blank, I want you to say it out loud. I want to hear you say, I'm going to say mine too. I want, to hear, I want you to hear you say your own name in that sentence. Okay? Real simple. Jesus must become greater. Kyle must become less. You got a little twinge of self-disclosure there, maybe. Maybe I need to become less. That felt good to say. That's what you're called to. Jesus must become greater. Kyle must become less. It's a move from central to supporting, from spotlight to shadows. John's lesser life is a mere reflection of Jesus' life. John's lesser life is just a reflection of Jesus' life. Lest this lesson be about John, this lesson is about Jesus, and John is just following a lead that Jesus will be setting. Jesus is the author of life and the creator of the universe, and what did he do? He became less. The king of kings, the king of kings, the author and creator of the universe, the <laughs> let there be light, Jesus, entered into the mess of humanity, born into poverty and placed in the arms of his unwed teenage mother. The creator of the universe was born in an animal stall, in deep poverty, and placed in the arms of his unwed teenage mother, he became less. Jesus could have ridden a lightning bolt to power. Jesus could have caused a worldwide earthquake from which he would emerge. Instead, animal stall. He became less to give his life and to make us whole and to make us more more than what we deserve, and then to offer us more, more satisfaction and more joy and more hope. But it all starts with Jesus' willingness to become less. He wasn't concerned about the being powerful. The only thing he cared about power was making sure that the powerful were humbled and called to justice. The only thing Jesus cared about power was calling the powerful to humility and justice. He wasn't threatened when his kingdom didn't look like the success of those around him. Or when people challenged him and said, why aren't you doing the thing we expect you to do? He said, okay, you'll see. Jesus rejected envy. Jesus redefined success. Just like what John says. Look at John 6.38. Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. The king of the universe comes to do the will of the father. Becomes less. Slips off to the sidelines. Puts the spotlight on the father in heaven. Jesus is pure and true humility. You are called to a supporting role in the greatest story ever told. You are called to a lesser life for a greater good. You are called to live like the one true king in true humility. What is true humility? True humility lives for others without drawing attention to self. True humility lives for others without drawing attention to self. We talked about secrecy some weeks ago and how secrecy can be a spiritual practice of doing something without drawing attention to yourself, 
of doing something and not telling anyone. And in a world that says, make much of yourself, I don't think they had those giant comedic checks that we have now when someone gives a donation and you're at the golf tournament or you're at the, the coffee shop or wherever you are and somebody gives a giant donation to that giant check. That's a pretty recent invention. It's called recognition. And we like to receive the giant. I'm holding the giant check. I'm going to hand it to him. Look how big the check was. And what Jesus is calling us to, what John is calling us to, what God is calling you to is to take a world where you might give that big donation and refuse to show up for the ceremony, where you might do that thing for your neighbor and never take credit, where you might love somebody sacrificially and no one else has to know. So look around this week and ask yourself the question, are you thirsty? Are you unsatisfied? At the end of your day, do you go home and go, what was today about? Whether you ever say that or not, is that the end of your day? And so lacking contentment, you go find more content. I'll watch that show I've watched three times. I'll watch it again. I'll scroll this a little bit longer, distract myself from the gnawing feeling in the bottom of my soul that maybe there's more to find and I haven't found it. Are you spending more time consuming content or cultivating contentment? Because what we know to be true is that no amount of power or wealth or status ever satisfies. John said he was overflowing with joy. His life was flooded with grace and beauty, and that's the life that we long for. John took the lesser life. He took the sidelines life. He eventually got beheaded for loving Jesus for following Jesus, for making much of Jesus. And yet John knew true contentment that few of us have ever known. John knew what it meant to have his life be about something that mattered, to have a purpose beyond himself, to get rid of the idol of self and the desire for recognition and instead make much of the one who made us. So the path to this place of satisfaction is clear. If you want true contentment in your life, if you want true satisfaction, if you want true fulfillment, if you want to find your purpose, it goes back to that slide with a blank on it. How many of your days are you willing to lead with that? Jesus, you must become greater. I must become less. Jesus, my prayer today is that you would be greater, that you would be made much of, and that I would be less that I would be unnoticed or unrecognized, that I would somehow fade into the shadows, that you would get the spotlight, that anything I do wouldn't even be accredited to me, but people would just look at it and go, gosh, Jesus is here. The journey to the fulfillment and the satisfaction and the contentment that we want so deeply, the thing that has us up rolling around in the middle of the night with anxiety, the thing that has us gnawing on our fingertips during the day, the thing that has us going through one partner after another, seeking the one who's going to make us feel whole, It's all a false chase because those are all leaky wells. The cistern with a crack in it. The way to contentment and satisfaction and joy and hope and salvation. Jesus must become greater. I must become less. Let's pray. Hi again. 
Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.